Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Uh, my name's Mark. Good to be here. Yes, epic, epic penalty shootout. And one of those moments when, um, no doubt, our op-eds will be filled with uh, the way in which a different time sport, particularly in Australia, can unite the country. I saw uh, multiple videos uh, just this morning, uh, one of an Emirates flight. I don't know where it was going, um, but basically the entire flight watching the penalty shootout and then going crazy and the stewardess getting a massive fright. There was one person watching Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, I saw another one in, in Apia. Uh, in, in Samoa, um, another one uh, in uh, Changi Airport, like all these Aussies going crazy in Changi Airport in Singapore, uh, at the MCG, like all these people not watching the game, going up and watching, even the commentators. Um, just one of those moments where you see in this country, uh, people in a, often times when Australia seems often quite fragmented, people come together and are drawn around something. And one of the comments that no doubt will come in the op-eds will be that sport is one of the only things that manages to do that in Australia. But I have to say that I come to you today with a paradigm shifted. Uh, this week, as part of the 24-7 prayer conference, um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to actually just tell some of the stories of what, do, what does it look like in the history of our country when people come together to pray. And I've got to admit, I've read um, some Australian church history, but I think many people, we're more aware of what happens in overseas. We can talk about history of the church in Great Britain or America or revivals in places like Korea, uh, India, Africa. Um, but this week, we flew up to Sydney, did an in and out sort of commando mission. And the mission was to sit down and interview the sort of eminent Christian Australian historian, Stuart Piggin, who we've quoted many times here. And what I've come away with after having to sit and prep, like he's got two massive Monash University volumes. Like honestly, they're that big. I didn't read them all, but I read quite a bit of it uh, after work on Friday, just pre- uh, on uh, Wednesday night, just preparing for this interview. Is I came away with a completely different view of my own country. The story of Australia is actually one of the nation coming together, like it did last night for the Matildas, around prayer. There are multiple times in our history when there have been incredible moves of God. 1902, which I preached on when I preached on prayer, an incredible move of God which happened in Melbourne, the Melbourne Mission, where there was, 11, I think it was around 117,000 people praying before the American evangelist R.A. Torrey came in Melbourne when the city was one million people. When Billy Graham came in 1959, I think it's something like around just under 2% of Australia became Christians. Uh, when he came. And one of the most incredible things is that Graham was actually invited to go to over 100 countries. He felt the Holy Spirit leading him uh, to come to Australia. Now, one of the things is that often, uh, and I've I've sort of boiled this down into a little saying, uh, when you study revival history and awakening history and renewal history, often before they happen, there tends to be a natural disaster, a war, an economic crisis. So I boiled that down into the sort of little saying, crisis precedes renewal. But what's interesting is when Billy Graham came in 1959 is there actually wasn't a super crisis. It was actually a post-war period. There was actually a lot of money. Australia was very peaceful and prosperous compared to lots of other countries. But Graham said he had never seen the spiritual hunger anywhere in the world. 
like he saw in 1959 amongst Australians, at a time of prosperity. But what he saw is that underneath the surface, that there is actually a deep spiritual hunger in Australians, that they realize at certain points that our peace and prosperity does not satiate the deep spiritual self. And I just want to just leave that statement with you. Billy Graham said he has never seen spiritual hunger like he saw in Australians. Nothing I learned this week, often the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement when uh, the spirit fell uh, in quite powerful ways is often you know, put back to a kind of little renewal, not a little, big revival that happened in Los Angeles at Azusa Street. Uh, I think it was around 1906. Do you know in 1870 in Portland, Victoria, the spirit fell in incredibly powerful ways. And so you can actually argue that it actually doesn't begin in Los Angeles, it actually begins in Victoria. Like, we don't think about ourselves like this. Piggins goes as far as arguing that the great Welsh revival, which I grew up hearing stories of, probably was influenced by what happened in Melbourne. That some of the revivals that happened in Korea were probably inspired by what happened in Melbourne. That some of the revivals that happened in India happened when Indian Christian leaders wrote to what was happening in Melbourne, said, what are your prayer strategies and how can we imitate them? And for me, what this has done is actually reframed how I see our city. Often I think we can see our city, our country, our state as places which are secular. Australians are uniquely resistant to religion is what we are told by our historians. But I think when you dig into the historical record, it's not true that actually there's an untold story, the Arnhem Land revival that happens in 1979 that begins very much in the margins of Australia and sweeps through Aboriginal communities all across Australia, bringing incredible uh, revival. There are stories that we do not tell about ourselves, and I think we need to reframe our expectancy about our own city, our own state, and our own country, because I actually think God wants us to think differently and not come with a fixed mindset that it's going to take this really difficult thing and we're always just going to hold on. What if in the future there will be times where Australia will be united, just as we were around a penalty shootout last night, but also as we have been around great movements of prayer, And let's maybe shift the paradigm in our minds. Let me pray. God, we recognize that you always want to move. We recognize, Father, that you are drawing history towards your ends. That your heart is not one where your church and faith simply fades away. That even when it seems dark, when the church seems to be having its epitaph written, that's precisely the moments that you do new things. So I just want to pray, Father, that we can just dispense with the idea that this is uniquely resistant soil, but actually remind ourselves that in this country, in this state, in this city, when your people have come together with expectancy, with dedication, with prayer, coming together as your people, that actually you move. So may we actually step into our destiny as the church in this city, state, and country. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a series that is underway. It is called Platforms to Pillars. And the essence of this series is talking about a way in which the contemporary world offers us this framework of thinking where we see our lives as a kind of platform. A platform, standing on one now, stage, is an elevated architectural structure. And in many ways, we see ourselves as individuals in an individualistic era on a kind of stage, set above importance. But if everyone's on a stage, no one's on a stage. 
And with this kind of mindset, I've been arguing actually not only, in a sense, gives us a faulty view of life, it's actually manipulated by others. It's really a myth. If everyone's on a stage, no one's on a stage. And really the powers in our world, we talked about this last week, is this platform society, is that that is manipulated and exploited. And where we find ourselves sort of in the end game of individualism is just being exploited for our clicks, for our likes. And that sense of being used, of being mined for things, is becoming more and more apparent, where the promises of freedom in our culture don't seem to be delivering. We've explored all kinds of different ways which platforms have influenced humanity and the ways that they're taking form today. We looked at the dais, the the platforms that kings and queens sat upon and the idea that today all of us should be on a dais. We looked at the podium, this kind of space where people believe that if we can just get the right content and information out there, the world will be a different place. We drew the line from ancient Greece, where philosophers would stand on podiums, to the modern world, where Joe Rogan has a massive platform that he, he broadcasts into the world. We looked at the stage, this space where we perform upon a raised platform and the idea that increasingly people perform today as if there's all this audience watching, but what it does is all it does is imprison us to have to perform to this certain stage and the, and the crushing uh, sort of pressure that that brings. And then last week we looked at the way that our whole society is actually being transformed through these big digital tech companies, everything from you know Uber uh, to Amazon, that really we are sitting here being exploited in many ways and we are simply just sort of cogs in a great machinery that increasingly does not recognize our humanity. Now what I want to do is I want to dig into the oldest kind of platform. We've gone back to ancient Greece. I want to go back even further and want to talk about a key kind of platform. But before we do that, we've been following the story of Exodus, this great story of deliverance of the people of God from an exploitation in Egypt. And we Last week looked at Moses who'd been given this role to deliver the people of God in partnership with God. Uh, We looked at this moment where he was given this, this challenge to pick up a staff that had been turned into a snake. What followed after that was a series of plagues in which the Hardening of Pharaoh's heart, his, his refusal to, to accede to God's authority, saw these various plagues come against Egypt. And where we're going to pick that up is the last plague. What's happened is all these different plagues, frogs and, and gnats and the water turning to blood, darkness, all this has come and Pharaoh will not relent until we get to the last plague. And the last plague is when the firstborn, both animal and human, pass away, uh, taken in Egypt, the most terrible of the last plagues. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It goes from, through 11 into 12, but I'm just going to pick up at 12, 21, verses to 28. It says this, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on top on, and on the so- both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your door. So, sorry, none of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on top and sides of the doorframe, and will pass over that doorway. 
who will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. What we have here is like a bounce back. If you remember the very beginning of this series, Pharaoh had ordered that all of the Hebrew boys be killed. And now it's like coming back at him. Verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? And then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. We'll come back to this. But what I want to do is I want to return to the oldest platform known to archaeologists. We've looked at daises, podiums, stages. There's all kinds of structures that humans have made at different times, but the oldest recorded platform is, just turn to the person next to you, see if you can guess it. Quick, go. Oh, rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. That sounds a whole lot of like, I'm not sure. Okay, I'll put you out of misery. You're exhausted from discussing the penalty shootout. The oldest recorded platforms known to humanity are altars. Oh, oh, so close. Altars are the original platform. They're in elevated spots. This representation, not just in the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but found in many other religions, right back to the beginnings of humanity, in this sort of place where there's this overlap between heaven and earth, the spiritual and natural realms. The Italian scholar of religious studies, Matteo Alide, said that altars are found almost everywhere, and often they're at the center. They're at the center of a building or the center of life. And we can look at this as a religious thing, but if you look beyond religion, In a secular society or a religious society, there's always an altar present. Sport in Australia is a kind of altar where we play out the dramas of life. Tragedy, victory, elation, depression. There's always an altar present. What altars are really when we get to the core, daises aren't everywhere, podiums aren't everywhere, stages aren't everywhere, but... The altar is the ever-present platform below all the others. We could go as far to say that actually altars are the core platform. And so what are altars? Altars are at the center, center of a culture, center of a life. They're also uh, this place where the spiritual and the natural heaven and earth often overlap. But also altars are places of sacrifice. And sacrifice, again, we don't just see in the religion of Israel, we see it everywhere. Sacrifice is used to try and create benefit, appeasement, or an effect from heaven to affect heaven or have the effects of heaven flow into the earth. So really what altars there are, they're places where sacrifice happens and sacrifice becomes a leverage point of influence in which we try to affect the world. And so sacrifice is the oldest way of trying to move something on an altar. And throughout history, people have sacrificed different things upon 
altars. And sacrifice, like altars, is also ever-present in all religious and secular societies. Just go to the War Memorial here in Melbourne, which celebrates or remembers the sacrifice that people gave to defend a country and giving of their lives. And all societies sacrifice. We give up money, time, freedom, sleep, attention, what we want for a cause or a vision flourishing. There's this sense that we believe in particularly our society. One of the great myths is that humans can be perfectible. We don't need God to perfect us. We can perfect ourselves. And so we spend a lot of time sacrificing on the altars of our platform society, time, effort, in all different ways, whether to improve our knowledge, to get the right credentials in education, to make ourselves physically perfect in some ways, to eat the right things, work out the right things, say the right things, have the right opinions, all on this basis that human perfectibility is possible. That's one of our great altars. And when we don't feel this, as often people throughout history have, when they don't do the right kinds of sacrifice on the altars, you feel a sense of shame. And in our platform society, this shame is also exploited, which are given then as reasons for even more sacrifices. And one of the core arguments of this sermon series is that where our culture portrays contemporary life as an unrestrained pursuit of pleasure and self-expression, the very opposite is true. That actually this pursuit leads to us being exploited, sacrificed, through our purchases, through our time, through our attention. Our attention is increasingly sacrificed for others' benefit. The ethnographer Richard Sennett did something interesting. At the beginning of the 90s, he began to interview people in their workplaces and he went behind the vision statements of what workplaces said and their corporate missions. And he said that really, what is the great myths of our society? Often ethnographers are people who have gone to various tribal societies throughout history and studied them, but Senate went right into the corporate work offices of New York and London and asked, what are the myths that we truly believe? And he found that actually the new ideal of how to live today, of how to do work, how to do leisure, is based on three principles. That the peak self which could actually succeed in this world today. What we're ultimately told beyond all the slogans is that number one, we should be ready to move on from relationships and community for better opportunities. Number one, that we should be ready to constantly move on from relationships and community for better opportunities. At first, this was just for jobs. We should move on from this job to get a better job and be prepared to move across town, move across the state, move across the world for a better job, better pay, better opportunities, better sense of meaning. But this then flowed into relationships, into community. That relationships and community should be sacrificed for a greater opportunity to develop the self. Secondly, he said the great principle is that we should be always constantly ready to reinvent and maximize ourselves to remain relevant, to change, 
that if we needed to adapt ourselves to fit the new world and what it was doing, we need to be ready to do that. To stay stable is actually to become irrelevant. The third thing he said is that we need to be consistently ready to let go of the past. That if we are in a relationship, in a job, if we need to reinvent ourselves, if we've gotten really good at something, that that technology goes out or that job becomes irrelevant, that we need to do a career shift, change relationships, move. And in a sense of constantly letting go of the past, what Senate realized is that we also need to let go of narratives that give us meaning because narratives that give us meaning are built up over time. But we constantly had to get rid of these. What Senate found was when you boil all of these down, what this is saying is that the new world of work and leisure asks us to sacrifice relationships, a core human meaning. For we feel a sense of place and connection to others. We're built for relationships, but we're actually told to sacrifice them and to sacrifice a sense of meaning and identity and narrative, all stuff that is key. The stuff that Viktor Frankl talked about in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, when he reflected upon the concentration camps and said that the people who survived were not the strongest, but those who had those very things. But our world increasingly calls us to sacrifice these things, to fit in, remain relevant in this world. And Senate noticed that organizations, cultures, societies, which pursue this new, idea, new ideal, ultimately damage people. And this has been even more true in our day. He did write that in the 1990s, uh, beginning of the 2000s, I think, where the platform society is even accelerated this, ensuring that we sacrifice for others' profit while remaining ourselves kinds of sacrifices. And as we dig deeper into this, we see that there are spiritual foundations. You see, sacrifice is either driven by sin of someone, yourself, someone else, or attempts to atone for sin. And at its deepest core, it's our broken relationship with God, others' broken relationship with God, which causes us to misuse our priestly role, to be mediators between God and humanity, and instead attempt to leverage altars and sacrifice for our benefit or be the price when other people are doing that to us. And so as we come back to this story in Exodus, this moment where in this Passover feast, we see that God intervenes in history. The story of the Passover feast, as we talked about this throughout Exodus, it, it points back to where humanity went wrong with God when we pursued our own authority. Did you know that Pharaoh never doubts the existence of the God of the Israelites. Never. He's not arguing with them as a, some kind of atheist. What Pharaoh argues against Moses is that the God of Israel should have authority over him and over the bit of land which he commands. That's the original sin. Adam and Eve did not doubt God's reality. What they doubted was God's authority. They wanted to carve out a piece of authority for themselves. 
And what we see in the Passover story is that God wants to come back and write this. And when his presence comes, it comes with redemption for those who are being exploited and hunger for his presence, but also brings judgment. We see this continual sense where Pharaoh's heart is hardening to the point where God hardens it. It's a really complex idea. But essentially what this is, is effectively God, after giving Egypt and Pharaoh multiple chances, allows him to follow the course which he's chosen. And that's where we see the bounce back of his original call to kill the next generation bounces back upon himself. He brings judgment upon himself. And when we try and be priests in our own power, leverage the altars of our world, sacrifice for our benefit, and do that outside of the power of God, we also bring judgment upon ourselves. But what the story of the Passover shows is a lamb is sacrificed. As the lamb's blood is put on these kinds of wooden pillars that are around the frame of a door, we see this pointing towards where this story is going. That we as priests cannot do this in our own strength. The way the story is heading towards is the coming of the new high priest, Jesus. And Jesus' work upon the cross means that you and I do not need to be sacrificed upon the altar. Jesus has died in our place. And what we see in Exodus is that story playing out in real time, moving towards that moment at Calvary. Jesus would celebrate this very Passover meal with his disciples the night before his death. And so we have to ask, ask, what does the first Passover tell us? Well, the Passover tells us that what God is doing in the Exodus story is preparing a people to move from exploitation, being exploited, to actually their true identity of a holy priesthood of God. Exodus 12, 21 says this, Then Moses summoned all the elders, the pillars of Israel, and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, put some blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. None of you should go out the door into your, of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame, and he will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The pillars of the house are marked with blood. Blood is a sign of the covenant relationship between the Hebrews and with God. The people are to be the pillars of what God is building next. They are preparing, being prepared for the coming of God's presence. Now, as we move from understanding the exploitation that happens when we're placed on the altar for someone else's benefit, we begin to see God here moving the story to prepare the people of God to be pillars I think this tells us three key things about what pillars are. Pillars as people who God uses in partnership for what he's building in the world. The first thing we notice in the story is there is this separation. At this point, Israel and Egypt have been living alongside each other. They're mixed in this way, particularly when it comes to a sense of like worship. They've lost their identity. They've been exploited. But at this point, he's actually telling us that, number one, pillars are set apart. Pillars are set apart. 
In Exodus 11, verse 7, the reason, one of the reasons God is moving in this great act of deliverance, he says, then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And what we have here, there's a term which is called syncretism. What syncretism is, when people worship God, but they also worship things of the world. And what we're seeing in this move here is from a syncretism to a set-apartness. Set-apartness is holiness. The people of God, through the blood being placed on their doors, through walk going through this Passover feast, they're actually being consecrated. What is consecration? Consecration when something was, was made ready to be sacrificed on an altar. But now they're not being sacrificed for someone else's benefit, for the projects of Pharaoh. What they're being set apart for is God and his holy purposes. God and his holy purposes. Holiness here, it's not about physical distance in our world. It doesn't mean here that we must separate ourselves physically and not work alongside people who worship differently from us, that it's actually about the worshiping distance, that you may be amongst people, but you must worship differently from them, live differently. And I think at this moment, there is this great move that is happening where what God is doing at this time, particularly in the next generation's, is calling people to be set apart and to worship differently to the rest of the culture. To ask the question, what parts of me need to be consecrated, set apart for God? Secondly, what we see in this story is that pillars then live sacrificially from God. The people of God move from being sacrificed to living sacrificially for God. We are not saved from being sacrificed by others, exploited, to simply then go on our own way and live under our own authority. That we move from being sacrificed for others to living sacrificially for God. What's really interesting is that the markers of the pillars of the door of the Hebrew houses shows us that the homes of the Israelites at that point become like separate sacred spaces subject to the authority of God. They're saying, oh, Pharaoh may not recognize the authority of Yahweh, but for me and my house, by marking the door frames, we're going to do it differently, and our house now is a mini temple. What becomes the altar? Where is the altar in this story? You know where the altar is in this story? The altar is the family tables around which the Israelites eat. So much of the ancient world was actually about temples that you went to. But what's happening at this point is the very tables around which human connection happens, relationships happen, stories are told, human narrative is built, community is fostered, children are raised, people are welcomed. Strangers are given hospitality. That actually that table becomes an altar given to God, the very center of all of their life narratives and their relational connections is to be transformed by God's presence and given to Him. This is why Paul in Romans 12.1 says to the early church in Rome, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We are then called to bring that altar into the center of our homes, into the center of our lives, in the center of our hearts, and to live differently to the world. 
The world, the platform society which we've been describing, simply says if there's a desire given to it in a second and it's created in this super streamlined world where your desires can be satiated in a second with the touch of a button brought to your door or downloaded onto your phone or screen. This is a different way. This is an invitation to sacrificial living where we willingly give up time, resources, money, sleep, our own agendas, even our lives for God. Why do we do this? Well, the third thing is pillars sacrifice for the next generation. We partner with what God is doing in the world for the next generation. Exodus 12, 24 reads this. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. An ordinance is like a command that keeps going. Does it just go for that person in their life? No, read on. For you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and sped our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is a commandment which is then to live sacrificially, to live in a way which passes on the knowledge of God to coming generations. Senate, when he did that study, found that actually what we were told is to sacrifice any narrative. A narrative, a story, a wisdom, that sense of meaning goes beyond you. You're part of something bigger. It goes beyond just your individual life. And so what God is doing here is he's replacing us back in to that great connection of what he's doing in history. But to do this, we have to live sacrificially. And part of the sacrifice that we actually have to make is to sacrifice the way we have been shaped by the contemporary world to just live in the moment, just live for us. And what happens in this moment is that amazingly, at this point, Moses is being shaped into a priest. Israel has not had a priest. It's not worshipping in the way that it worships later when it moves into the promised land. But what's happening in this story is that every parent in this story, in every Hebrew household, becomes a priest. They're mediating over the Passover meal in their house, mediating between God and the next generation. And this is our call. Not just those of you who are biological parents of your children, but to all of us whether you have children or not, are called to be spiritual presence, parents. There is this sense where we see this story go through, this commandment to pass on the knowledge of God across the generations. We also see, as Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, discipleship is a form of spiritual parenting to pass on the ways of God to the next generation. To do this, this requires sacrificial living. There was an amazing woman of God who lived in the 19th century called Phoebe Palmer. She had three children. The first two children she lost very young. And she had one remaining child. And tragically, when that remaining child was 11 months, a fire when someone knocked a lamp, caught on fire around the child's bed, and the children, the child passed away in Phoebe Palmer's arms. And in her grief, this caused her to press into God in a profound way. 
And she developed something which she called her altar theology, which is really a simple way of looking at the Christian life. And the question was, what are you prepared to put on the altar? After losing her children, she realized that she gained this time. She had spent so much time looking after them, and all of a sudden she had this time now, time where she could do what she wanted to do. But she felt, and God spoke to her deeply in her moments of grief, that actually that time she now had to put on an altar before God. And in her altar theology, Phoebe Palmer would ask people, and she became an incredible evangelist and revivalist and and woman of God uh, who was a powerful leader. And really her theology can be boiled down to this. There should be nothing that we are not prepared to put on the altar before God. That there's this step of consecration. And you heard some of it in Rob Reamer there, that, that we have suitcases of our souls. In a sense, they are our lives. And when there are things that we are placed in the altar that is not God, idols, and there's the easy part when it's perhaps something which is obviously wrong. It's harder when it's like a wound, a hurt, a disappointment, a shyness. But what Phoebe Palmer realized and found was that when you place those things upon the altar before God, that God consecrates them. He transforms us. That we begin to live fully for him. And so that story that I told at the beginning, in Australian history, when God has powerfully moved followed on from times where the people of God consecrated themselves. They placed things on the altar. They sacrificed to pray. They sacrificed to be part of a bigger story, and God moved. This is not just something which happened in the early 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century. This is something which God can do again. And I just have this sense at this moment, as all these different things are happening, and we've seen parts of them this year. We've heard the testimonies uh, from Asbury, We've seen stuff happen in our church, that there's a great invitation, but often what happens is you see the Spirit will come and the Spirit will come close and little spires often spark off or there's just the early mists of rain. But the next step, the next step is often then to say, we want to go with this. God, we want to be a resting place where you can come and dwell amongst us and for you to come and dwell amongst us, there is stuff that we want to place on the, on the altar that we want to give back to you. Daniel mentioned there's a lot coming up for people at the moment, pastorally. There's stuff that people are starting to say, like, there's stuff I'm realizing I've not dealt with for years, if not decades. And that's coming up now, I think, for a very clear reason, that actually God is asking us to move into sacrificial living and to move out of just living lives which are being sacrificed for others. So what I'd love to do now is we don't have an altar. Some churches have altars, some churches have tables. We don't have an altar. But what I love is the idea that the altar is everywhere. The altar is in a moment where you can just bring anything before God. We do have tables on the sides and at the back with representation of that meal that was taken as Israel got ready to move into deliverance out of exploitation, ready to move and walk in the way of God, no longer in the way of Misraim, of Egypt.
Their blood, which was placed on the door frames, would become the blood that Jesus spilt upon the cross. The bread, which they were to bake, ready to go at the last moment. No yeast symbolizing sin in the communion is transformed into Jesus' body given for us. And so what I would like to do now is I'd just like to open up some time in the last time we have as an invitation to do two things. Come, take communion. The meal just before deliverance. The meal moving from being sacrificed to living sacrificially. And then I'd just like to open up the front, the step. Phoebe Palmer was part of the Wesleyan tradition where you had what was called a mercy seat at the front of the church where you could come place all you had before God on his altar and then feel his mercy. So I'd love to open up the front. If there's anything you're feeling the sense of, I need to place that there. It's not all bad stuff. Often it can be good stuff. But that you need to give to God. The space is open. Band's going to come now. Space is open. Let's move into this time of meeting God at the altar.